It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race. I'm David Lappin. I'm joined by Darrow Kearney. And our mission this week is to coexist in two places as we attempt to cover both the Norwegian Poker Championships in City West and the Unibet UK Tour Brighton. Our headline guest is Canadian Poker Pro and WPT Fallsview champion Mike Leia. Ian's got all the exciting results from the Irish Open. Dara and Dive will be correcting Doug Polk's work in our strategy segment, taking a closer look at a televised hand between Phil Helmuth and Liv Barry. We'll also be talking to Norwegian Unibet ambassador, e-gamer turned poker pro Frederick Bergman. But first... We're joined now once again by PokerStrategy.com editor Barry Carter. Barry, welcome back to the show. That was a pleasure. Lovely to meet you in person, finally. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we're all here together in a little cramped-up London hotel room. Excuse me, we're in a plush studio. Don't, don't tell studio, me the sorry, uh, Barry, about a month ago when we were on hiatus, uh, you wrote a really good article on your own poker blog at PokerMediaPro.com on the idea of pros as content creators, basically putting forward the idea that while we still have some ostensibly patched-up pros uh, who are signed because they're big names the culture of signing ambassadors has shifted in favor of the content creator over the last few years be they twitcher blogger vlogger or what have you would you mind elaborating on this idea and uh, why you think that change came about yeah it was strangely enough one of the most talked about things i've written in years um and it's a subject that i've always found fascinating it's quite dear to me and um we've moved past a point where you can just put a patch on a player because they're good at poker I remember years ago when um, Jake Cody was winning everything and he wasn't sponsored at the time and uh, also Anne Widdicombe was on Strictly Come Dancing at the same time <laughs> I made a comment which annoyed a few people which was Anne Widdicombe could do more for a as a sponsored player than Jake Cody could and people were annoyed by that because they feel this sense of injustice that the good player should have the um, should have the patch but the, the fact of the matter is if you're going to be a brand ambassador you kind of in my mind a responsibility to either bring new players to the site or encourage existing players to play more at the site i mean there's branding issues there's you know there's some people that are really really good ambassadors and create the right image for a site but generally speaking poker players are really really mindful of where the marketing budget goes i mean this is our rake at the end of the day so in my mind you've got to produce something that gets people playing at your site putting a patch on someone who's good at poker with a few exceptions doesn't do that anymore in my opinion and i absolutely adore the new model we're seeing people like yourselves uh, i reference finton and spraggy in in there and the reason i referenced them was because i don't really know them but i see the value of them because they're constantly on twitch creating content always talking to their audience always asking questions they must put in something like 30 or 40 hours of content a week you were telling me that you guys put like 23 hours per episode into your podcast and they're just producing something and for the first time because of twitch because of podcasts we now have metrics where you can actually measure the success of a sponsored player and and i love it i love the twitch i love the the youtube guys I love the podcasts to me I, I likened it to infomercial products because unlike saying i'm good at poker you should play at this site you're actually demonstrating the product so people can actually make an informed decision whether it's demonstrating it on Twitch like you David sometimes do when you're flopping quads for fun and stuff like that um, <laughs> very, or in the pod- very rarely or, or getting the- dogged by 9-4 suitors <laughs> or in the podcast that you do where you can interview people about the promotions that you do and you can talk a little bit in depth about the promotions you can answer questions about the promotions and you're just doing a hell of a lot so it's uh, we've gone from sponsored players kind of stealing a free buy-in to a tournament now and then to sponsored players actually being full-on staff members who do a hell of a lot of work and I think it's a, I think it's a really good model. 
Yeah, I was at the Aussie Millions recently, and somebody actually asked me at the table. They saw my patch, obviously, and didn't know who I was. But they asked, like, "What does Unibet mean?" And I explained, and then they go, like, you know, that I was a brand ambassador, and they go, "Well, how do you become a brand ambassador? What's what's required?" And I, unfortunately, I hadn't read your piece at the time, so I was really struggling for an answer. And in the end, somebody else saved me by just saying, "Well, you have to be asked." Um, <laughs> but you mentioned metrics there, mm. and you know that, that that we can now actually measure the value of brand ambassadors. Like, what kind of metrics specifically are you thinking about? Well. I mean, there's the, um, the the bread and butter one of how many people you can get to sign up. I mean, if you the most poker players on Twitch, for example, will have some sort of link, usually an affiliate link, usually with some sort of marketing code or bonus code or something like that. And that's a very obvious metric. And I suspect the Twitch guys do relatively well attracting new players there. But I also think retention is a massive one. You know, if people are coming back to the same streamer or the same podcast every single week, that's kind of... Uh, uh, proof and it's really really easy to measure those things I know the Twitch uh, statistics are uh, pretty robust to tell you a lot um, my decent understanding of podcast metrics will tell you something else they'll tell you how long for example someone has been listening that's for correct yeah. and so on yeah. uh, YouTube is really good I mean mm. YouTube can tell you some fascinating stuff I'm quite friendly with the uh, the guy that works behind Doug Polk's YouTube channel and yeah. some of the stuff that he was telling me about what they know about their audience was absolutely fascinating to me yeah. but we're in the digital age I mean like even things like Google Analytics if you if you've got a blog, you can see who your audience is, where your audience is from, how long they yep. stayed on the page, the average age, the demographics, and stuff like that. And it's just so much easier to show what you're doing for a poker site now compared to making a final table with a patch on. Yeah, completely. Uh, you, you mentioned blog there, and on my blog, I have analytics, and it's 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 very interesting. Like in addition to telling me where people come from, what times they typically come on and read my blog, even if they're going back and reading old blogs, I can also tell, for example, like what URL they're coming in from. So yeah. I know for a fact that when it comes to promoting my own blog, Twitter is much more effective than Facebook because mm. I get far more click-throughs on Twitter. I also know that still most people find my blog just through Google. Yeah. And I can actually see the words that they're looking for, like Doug's blog. So so that gives me a sense of how to like sell my blog and, and go on attracting those people. Yeah, at, um, at Poker Strategy where I work, well, I think one of the things that we do really, really well, and it's a culture in the uh, in the business that I've, I've really enjoyed working with, is we've got like a testing mentality. So we we will test out things and then we will look at things like Google Analytics mm. to see if it worked. And like things that we found out, for example, for whatever reason, tournament reporting, our audience doesn't want that. I think it's probably because they go to someone like Poker News mm. uh, or the direct site, like they go to unibet.com, I imagine, that you've got your own blog and stuff like that. So they just don't come to us. Like I remember we sent like, a pretty biggish team to the main event final table. We had uh, something like 16 hours of concurrent working back and forth and stuff like that. We had videos and all sorts. And then we found out like 90 people had watched the whole thing and mm, that's uh, depressing it's very depressing but then by the same token we found that we do a video where we just say this is a micro stakes video our audience goes nuts for any time we say micro stakes so what we do is we do less of what our audience doesn't like and we do more of what our audience does like so if you come to poker strategy and you find the, the content a little bit odd it's actually believe it or not geared to what our audience has shown that they like so you know in the age of uh, big data I think it's called you know you've got to be listening to the, the, the metrics that you you can get your hands on. Yeah, I, I agree fully on that. When I started the blog, I was aware that the most popular blogs that I wrote were trip reports of tournaments. That's completely changed over the years.
years now and, and, and they are actually they tend to be my least popular blogs mm. my most popular blogs tend to be opinion pieces mm. which you know I wouldn't necessarily have suspected if I didn't have the analytics but at the same time I also feel like the, the problem with for example blogs is if you keep doing the same thing over and over again it loses its mm. power so people will, will stop reading even though certain types of blogs are less read than others I still feel it's kind of important to keep mixing it up now, that's interesting with the opinion pieces do you think that's perhaps in part because you've built up a quite a loyal following so they become fans of you rather than the blog so that yeah. the opinion is uh, is kind of the uh, the big thing for them at the time I think I think that, I think you're exactly right there and, and I, I, for example I've also found that when I write more personal pieces where I talk about past experiences mm-hmm. or something those blogs tend to be more popular than just if I'm at a tournament and I describe what I saw and you know I'm, I'm essentially absent from the story yeah. yeah and I guess trip reports are the sort of thing that someone would find from a search ranking or something because you'll have put the right keywords in like Vegas 2014 Rio yeah. Golden Nugget stuff like that yeah yeah for sure well finally Barry we had Tonka on the show a few weeks ago he's absolutely crushed it on Twitch obviously parlaying the influence you describe into a deal he uh, is a very entertaining guy he's also not afraid to be himself bad language uh, calling people out etc I think Lex is similar so it seems to me more than just content creation it's also a little bit about force of personality do you think these guys uh, and uh, maybe even Dara and I make a strong case that the uh, the myth uh, that modern players have less entertainment value than their predecessors could possibly be debunked yeah you've picked two guys that I absolutely adore on Twitch to be honest I interviewed both I'm, I'm quite friendly with Lex and I interviewed Tonka about six months ago and in both cases I actually said this directly to Tonka um, I think the reason why they're successful is there's absolutely no filter between what happens in their head and what comes out of their mouth <laughs> and uh, credit to both of their sponsors you know they don't try and stop them sure. in any way I mean uh, they're, they're, you know Lex is swearing at bad beats and stuff like that which you'd think a poker room would be slightly nervous about but there's certain people that stream who I'd say are very much company men I think Jamie Staples is unashamedly one of those for example and he does a good job in that regard but yeah there's, there's always entertaining people and there's yeah, just no filter I mean what's more entertaining than someone going crazy when they win or lose like Lex and Tonka do so yeah it's it's very very um, sticky I think is the word you know it re- you really come back for more for that sort of stuff absolutely well Barry Carter you can find him on pokerstrategy.com and of course pokermediapro.com thank you so much for popping back on the show Any- we'll, we'll have to have you again soon anytime anytime thanks Barry we're joined now by Unibet Esports Ambassador. He's the 2009 bronze medalist World Cyber Games, a.k.a. the Olympics of Gaming in Chengdu. In 2010, at the age of 19, he was a Trackmania champion of the world. He's also the winner of a recent esports sit-and-go in Bucharest. He is, of course, Frederick Bergman. Frederick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Frederick, I'm going to open with a version of the question we ask all the esporters. Your game, Trackmania, uh, I liken it to Micro Machines. Uh, I'm sure that's very disrespectful. It's a driving game anyway. Not really a strategy game, though. So does that mean there's less crossover between that and poker? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you don't drive around in a race car in poker. But uh, in terms of like um, planning ahead for matches and practicing and the mindset, I would say there are similarities for sure. You recently won the Unibet Esports Sit and Go in Bucharest for your biggest ever score. What was that experience like playing with other esporters, and what adjustments do you make playing against those guys, say, rather than your average online player? Well, for starters, it was a lot of fun playing with people who share the same passion as me in terms of gaming. Um, in terms of the level and skill-wise, I I pretty much just played straightforward poker and didn't try to bluff too much, except for one big one, big one which I made and worked. 
But yeah, obviously the level is not the same as in like a normal poker tournament, but I just tried to play like I've learned recently, so it worked. Well, speaking of learning the game, it's obviously a game you've only picked up in the last couple of years. Uh, you were recently signed by Bankroll Supply, obviously one of the biggest uh, staking stables out there. Uh, what made you decide to get staked this year? And have you got any coaching from Dara yet? Um, I haven't. I'm looking forward to it, though. Um, so, yeah, that should be fun. Um, no, the reason why um, I wanted to join them is because I want to take my uh, uh, skill level to the to the next step. I want to imp- improve as a player, and I think that they can truly help me with that. As David mentioned in the opening, you played games in China, a country where gaming is huge, but also poker is becoming huge. What was the experience of China like? China was amazing. Um, I didn't really know... Uh, what to expect before I went there. I just knew that the gaming was way bigger in Asia than it is in the rest of the world. So when I got there, I was truly blessed with uh, how friendly and how hyped everyone were. Like when we, when I played the grand final, I played in front of 15,000 Chinese uh, enthusiasts. Wow. And there's like nothing like that in poker for sure anyway. Oh, I don't know that. But um, I also didn't play with any music in my ears. So I could hear every, every cheer and every clap. It was insane. It's amazing. Yeah. And any other stories from China? You know, obviously a big cultural difference. You're from Norway. Um, was there anything else about that experience? Any stories from being there? Um, there's one story that uh, checks out for me, and that was when we went to the Panda Reservation Park there. Mm-hmm. Um, we were escorted by police cars. Okay. So that we caught a lot of attention from the uh, public um, and the locals. But uh, the, their fr- the friendliness they show is just so different from uh, from the rest of the world. They are extremely friendly and always want to help you. Even if they don't understand English, they try their best to be very welcoming and warm. So I really appreciate that. And did you play in front of a lot of crowds uh, for e-gaming? Because you know that's something that poker players like really find it hard to relate to. Because even when you go to the World Series, they kind of have to pay people to to show up and watch you on a final table or whatever. Um, e-gaming seems to be pretty different on that front. Yeah, people for starters, uh, at nine out of ten events, it's free to enter to for the public, and usually you have anything from a few hundreds to thousands of spectators. So I've been in front of a lot of different crowds, so, and I think that has helped me handle pressure. Even though you, like you said, you can't really rely to it in poker because you don't have the, those crowds. But in, just in like these tense moments where, where else, let's say I'm bluffing, then I'm able to stay calm because I'm used to the pressured moments. That's really interesting. It's an interesting area crossover too. Dara, you've been in China uh, earlier in your life as well. Was there a difference then? Obviously, Freddie was there just a few years ago. What did you observe? Uh, to be honest, I wasn't in China. I was in uh, Hong Kong and Macau uh, just after Macau had been handed over to China. Um, so uh, I, I was going to go to mainland China, but uh, one of the guys I, I, I was going to go with, uh, a Malaysian Chinese guy, actually got panicked when we went to the embassy and he got treated so well that he, he thought, why do they, why are they this desperate to get me to go to China? <laughs> so so he bailed <laughs> on the trip. So my tour guide was gone. But I, I have been in Korea, which another, I know is a country where gaming is huge as well and uh, the sport that I used to do running it was huge there the, that's why the world championships were, were quite often held in Korea it, it was definitely the case that the Asians were far more into uh, ultra running than than say Europeans um, particularly the Japanese uh, never lucky enough to go to Japan but but like that's one of their major sports uh, like they take that ser- more seriously than a lot of sports that we take seriously well speaking of sport and obviously Dara you, you competed at a very high level in ultra running Freddie you're currently doing a BA in sports science 
I believe you're in your final year now. In what way do you think having a sport or, or even working out, I know you're a big gym goer, in what ways is that good for a poker player, you know, both physically and mentally? And do you have any tips for someone like myself who's entering the dad bod phase of his life? I think in terms of uh, relaxation and uh, just keeping your mind clear, it's really good for you. And no matter what you're doing, if you're doing sport, if you're doing gaming or just like general work and, you know, uh, people people think that you just need to be healthy when you do a sport specifically, but uh, for, for me, it's helped a lot. Like, I noticed that in gaming as well, I had a slump for a few years where I didn't take care of myself and then I decided I'm, I'm going to change my lifestyle now and see how that affects me in multiple ways. And in gaming, I just got way better. I did way less mistakes than I used to and I think that's uh, a big part of the reason for that is my change in lifestyle and especially working out a lot because I was able to focus way more yeah I can understand that yeah that's that's true actually David uh, I, I wouldn't say that all hope is, is gone for you at this stage because <laughs> I think I think I was about your age when I actually took up running, and and, and it was for the same reasons that you are sort of w- worrying about your bal- your ballooning shape. I was in pre- I was in really bad shape at your age as well. Maybe not quite as bad as you, but but still pretty bad. Um, and I took up running, and and uh, so you know, not too late yet, David. I know, but this is the worst part of that. I I always held on to the idea that well, I you know, Daryl was still older than me before he even took up running. Oh, Daryl was still older than me. But now now it is that age, and I haven't done anything about it. So I. Can't I kept postponing it until this exact time uh, for that reason but now I do I have to deal with it somehow my goodness I definitely do you are going to have to do it and I remember the first time I went for a run like literally in my life uh, it was just around the block where I lived so it was about 800 meters and I spent 20 minutes on in a pool of sweat on the bed afterwards barely able to move so you know there, there is still hope <laughs> I hope so. Um, the other thing I wanted to actually mention, because you, you brought up obviously the subject of how, if you don't mind me put it this way, you let yourself go for a period of time while you were gaming. I can see how that's a very common thing for gamers, you know, that you're sitting in a couch or you're sitting in an office chair uh, doing your thing. Our other esports ambassador, Alan Whitman, has sort of, I, I think he tweeted there the other day, he's put a, a bet out there if anyone wants to take the other side of him losing £100 in 2018, and nobody's taken him up on it yet. So I reckon, you know, maybe. He, he has the will to do it and people know that you, you need the will to be able to do it but you also need to take the first step the first step is the hardest one and it's going to hurt in the start but once you get past that uh, the first few weeks then it's well worth it yeah I agree I agree completely with that like I think the, the, what, the hardest part is just to like form a new habit and when you've done it you know every day for a certain number of days then it, then it becomes ingrained as a habit but, um, but, but but actually getting past that sort of starting phase is definitely the, 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 the tricky part and to bring it back to poker um you've been on the unibet team for about a year now freddie who are your favorite and least favorite of the other ambassadors uh, putting me on the spot eh? it shouldn't be a difficult question freddie it should be a really easy question at least the first part yeah like for the most favorite the uh, ambassador it's i mean david has hunter going for him so it's oh my god so i, I only because i have a, a cute little son yeah that doesn't mean that i like you though it means <laughs> No, um, no, I can't answer that. Like, I, I love everyone. Everyone has helped me a lot. Except Ian, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Ian hasn't helped me at all. <laughs> like, David van der Heiden got me in a taxi from uh, a party, so... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a really nice move, actually, by David, yeah. In, in fairness, you were celebrating having won that yeah, sit-and-go in, in Bucharest that day, so, you know, you were allowed to blow off a bit of steam, uh, I think. Uh, let's pretend. Well, on that note, Freddie, uh, you are a lovely man, uh, wonderful to talk to. We hope to have you back on the show at some point in the future, but all the best for 2018. Good luck with Bankroll Supply. Good luck with your own game, and I'm sure we'll see you on the Unibet tables. We will.
thank you. Thanks, Freddie. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello! We're here at the Irish Open, and we've just crowned a brand new champion on Sunday night when Ryan Mandara defeated Ferdia O'Connell heads up. The pair did a little bit of business, which meant Ryan took home 210,000 euros and the title, while Ferdia bagged 180k. Not bad, considering Ferdia qualified for this event for just one cent. Pascal Baumgartner finished third place, Dan Sampson got fourth place, Joseph Cahill got fifth place, and our very own Samir Singh came sixth place. Pretty incredible that he has now gotten back-to-back sixth-placed finishes in the Irish Open. Congratulations to him. Daniel Farga and Dean Clay took seventh and eighth, respectively. It was the biggest Irish Open field to date, with a whopping 1,348 entries. Yeah, Ian, look, I don't have any words for what I think Sammy has done here with the back-to-backs. I I have to just uh, give a huge shout-out to him on this front. Incredible to kind of navigate through these type of fields. I know he came into day three last year with like 11 bigs, never got above like 17 bigs, navigated all the way to sixth place finish. This year, again, I think he went back with 11 or 12 bigs going into day three. Again, you know, he he did get up to a 30-big stack at one point, I believe, but he was still navigating that mid-stack the whole way. I think tournament ground out there a huge amount of respect for someone who can do that particularly do it uh, twice in a row I also love that we can claim him as one of our own because he was the first person uh, in Irish Open history to wear a chip race patch something I'm sure we'll be getting them to do for years to come on the subject of back-to-back finishes of course you Ian would know all about these you our newsman did this back in 2012-2013 when you were the sole survivor and then the winner the next year uh, Sammy obviously didn't manage to take it down this year having gone deep the previous year but uh, you know what does it take to do something like this a lot of run good let her run Let good. Let run good, yeah. Uh, and did you navigate that mid stack at any stage? Once I had 20 bigs and three bed jammed and doubled. So <laughs> I, I never had less than 20 bigs throughout the whole damn thing. So so a different sort of experience of maybe what is a similar achievement. Very much so. Sammy, Sammy's short stack grinding is a lot more impressive than me look boxing my, uh, my massive stack throughout uh, the whole thing. You're being far too modest, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Obviously, though, the biggest congratulations have to go to Mandara. Incredible result to win. He played really well. I did a little bit of commentary on this one with Andrew Headley, and he actually picked Ryan pretty early on. He thought he had one of the bigger chip stacks, and also he had sort of not put a foot wrong in the run-up to that final table and on the final table. So very deserved champion. And also, wow, Ferdia, one cent turned one into cent. 180 grand. you got to give a lot of props for that. Incredible stuff. What a, what a parlay. Uh, yeah, pretty incredible stuff this year. We had two big side events. Uh, Ikak Sasha won the 2K High Roller. And last year's WSOP main event final table is Jack Sinclair won the JP Masters. My notes say that I've got to mention uh, who he beat. Any What? I don't understand. Oh, who did, Jack beat? Who, who did Jack beat heads up to? I don't know who wrote that script. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, Jack did actually manage to take it down, uh, beating me heads up in the JP Masters. Delighted to get that deep again. I, I made the final table of JP's event once before. I think I lasted one hand on the final table that time, so much nicer to last a few hours and, and get second. Yeah, it was a really good battle heads up, um, but, you know, ultimately Jack came out victor. Yeah, yeah. Congrats so- to him on that. Lots of nappy and gin money for you, so you'd be, you'd be happy with that. <laughs> nappy and gin, yeah. Bought it at the same time in the same supermarket, yeah. <laughs> so, any other news? Uh, no, no. No other news. There well, must be but, other news in the world. We can't, not, it can't might, just be the Irish Open and nothing else. There might be, but we're snowed in here, so we can't, we can't, we're, we're disconnected from the outside world. <laughs> that is true. There was a huge snowstorm here in City West, which has basically rendered motorways and all routes here completely untenable, so we have actually been sort of, like, trapped in this. <laughs> 
this sort of weird poker limbo for the last few days. It's not much different to our normal lives, just being trapped in weird poker limbo. So <laughs> it's just a bit prettier outside. Well, maybe there are other news stories. We will certainly cover them next week. <laughs> Until then, thank you so much, Ian. Anytime. Take care. For our strategy section this week, Diva rejoined us and she's here to discuss a hand which actually was covered very recently by Doug Polk in one of his Poker Hand segments. They're usually very good, very GTO. Doug has done uh, great work over the last few years building a channel, providing lots of free content that I think a lot of people have probably had their first steps into what GTO is through him uh, and fair play to on that. But we did happen to spot... Uh, an analysis of his that maybe could have done with a little update or another little bit of work. It's maybe something he didn't realise because, you know, to be honest, uh, on first glance, I'm not sure a lot of us would have seen the opportunity in this hand. But anyway, I want to get straight to it. It's a hand between Livbury and um, Phil Helmuth. Phil Helmuth, obviously a guest on the show not too long ago. Uh, Dara, if you want to take us through this hand, it's quite a famous one. It's kind of gone viral. Yeah, Doug covered it on his channel. I, I believe it's from a cash game where there was a straddle and Phil Helmuth was a straddle. Um, so Phil, Phil straddles, uh, Liv picks up pocket buys, so she raises or opens however you want to describe it. Uh, it's folded around to Phil in the straddle and, and he looks down at aces. Um, Phil makes a very small uh, re-raise, um, or three-bet, whatever you want to call it. And Liv, obviously, because she has pocket buys and it's a small amount, calls. So that's how the hand starts. Yeah, as I recall, the action goes 300 uh, uh, on top of the straddle to 100. And then Phil, as you're quite right out of the big blind, kind of a strange spot for him there. We, we often won't have big blind raising ranges, or if we do, they'll be extremely narrow. So it does represent a lot of strength. He goes for a weird sizing, though, like you mentioned. He makes it 500 more to 800. So pretty much commits her with almost her entire range there. Um, maybe there's a few bad offsuit aces she might open and fold, but it, it, it's, a, it's a compelling size. Diva, what did you make of the hand up to this point? It, it, it's somewhat standard, I guess. Yeah, I feel it's like standard. Uh, obviously, Liv has to open her pocket fives. Um, she wants to narrow down the field and play in position and just spill, who's very likely to have a better wide range at that point, considering he just straddle. And once she gets raised, yeah, she's just getting the right lot to call and they are very deep, so yeah, she can play behind in position very well. And uh, yeah, I would prefer a bigger race from Phil, uh, maybe go just for X, um, just um, get more value from a strong hand. Because no one probably suspects he has aces. So, yeah, why just don't, yeah, raise up a bit more, I guess. Well, apart from that, I think it's all fine. Yeah, out of position, I think 4xing there, maybe a raise to 11, 12, even 1300 seems a lot better. But anyway, he chooses the 800 sizing. She calls. We go to the flop of King Jack 10 rainbow and you know obviously uh, from Phil's point of view that's not the greatest flop possible as Doug pointed out on the stream himself it's it's sort of a hand where a lot of other three betting hands that he might have in that spot have overtaken aces an interesting way of looking at the hand but actually a very refreshing way of thinking about it so actually with aces he's further down his range than maybe he would be on much drier boards Dara yeah like uh, the point um don't made it. apart from all the sets you can hit you can obviously have all the sets on that board because you probably would three bet kings jacks and tens you can also have ace queen which is nuts on that board you can have some two pairs like king jack jack ten suit type hands so he has a lot of better hands all of a sudden now than aces um so aces does slide right down his range now he has a lot of worse hands as well i mean he has he has a lot of ace highs um that are just ace highs and possibly some under pairs on the board as well 
Plus, if he's if he's reasonably balanced in this spot pre-flop, he needs to be better in some sort of suited connector type hands like nine eight suited, eight seven suited, with at least some frequency, so that he doesn't sorry his board coverage basically, so that he, he can cover the sort of the, the, the midly flops. So on this flop, yeah, he he's probably down towards the middle of his range, maybe even slightly below. Average. Yeah, and I guess when you're in that spot, whether you choose to bet or check becomes maybe quite a close decision. When I first look at this one, I'd be inclined to take a street out somewhere. I'd feel like over three streets, there isn't a huge range of hands that maybe I could get value off. Maybe I guess the obvious one being Ace King that she might flat or King Queen. They're the hands you might get three streets off on a dry board but really you know it's a two street sort of hand in terms of value now and the question is do we take the street out immediately my first inclination might have been to check diva what do you think in this spot would you be leaning towards check or bet oh i think it's pretty close i think it's totally player dependent um how often do you think you're going to get raised by Liv and also what kind of hands she continues uh playing when she gets free bet pre-flop so uh, based on all that information, I think my decision would be, you know, like totally player dependent. So uh, I think it's close enough. Yeah, I agree. I think it's super close. I think my default would be to bet um, because when we when we were talking about the flop, we said that Phil has a lot of stronger hands than aces. Now, the fact that he has so many strong hands actually means that it's kind of a good flop for his range. Mm, yeah. So I think despite the fact that he has one of the like not better hands um, on, on this particular flop. I think there's a, there's a good argument for just betting your entire range here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I guess another point there is when you're uh, playing this board texture, if you like, you're playing your entire range, or ideally if you want to get as close to GTO as possible, you're representing your range on this board. As you say, that's a board that should hit the, the Razor's range. So, so why not bet it? It protects maybe your small pairs that you might have gone for a funky little three bet. It will protect your ace-five suited it might protect your 7-8 suited, your 8-9 suited, those kind of hands. I think, yeah, listening to Dara, like definitely, you know, he makes a good argument for leaving out because, yeah, you want to protect the gloves as well and just sometimes take it down if she's got something like, like the hand she had, you know, like she yeah. some outs for, you know, to outdraw you. So, but yeah, I just get paid by that hand. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, if we have ace five suited, um, it's a great result if she falls apart the fives. Yeah. Um, so, I think there, there's a strong argument for just backing. No yeah, what we I have. like that. And obviously, if we have a hand like a seven suit as well, it's brilliant for some pocket fires goals. I think she would, she would obviously afford it to a bet. And also, nine time kind of hand you just want yeah. also protect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, going to the turn, it does go check check. Uh, uh, maybe we should just talk about Liv's. Liv obviously checks behind, which I think is is, is perfectly standard. But I think Doug made the point in the in the video, and I do agree that occasionally we should turn pocket fires into a, into a bluff. Um, we need to have some bluffs on this board to fill checks. Um, and the best kind of candidates are the low pairs, uh, like twos, threes, fours, fives. They're actually better candidates than, say, nines or eights, because if Phil has, say, the ace five suited, which he's, he's or ace six suited, which he's now going to give up with, it's a much better result for us to get the fold from that hand when we're holding pocket fives. Um, ace six suited has pretty good equity against that hand. Uh, say, as opposed to when we have pocket nines, um, he has very little equity. That's a very good point. On balance, I do like her check back. She does check back. Um, and with about 1,700 still in the pot, we go to the turn. Bingo for Liv. She hits a five. Uh, Phil now, in my view, has a very clear bet because, you know, that should be a safe card. 
and um, uh, but he doesn't bet. And I want maybe Dara or or Diva, whichever you, of you want to jump in, uh, tell me why that's a good idea to 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 now bet in his shoes. Well, yeah, I mean, all of us agreed uh, that he should totally bet and um, start building the pot and getting called by worse hands. And I don't think there are many bluffs in uh, Liv's range if she continues. Um, so yeah, just for Wally, I guess. Yeah, Liv is going to check, is going to bet most of her strong hand on the block. I mean, even if she has ace queen and she's up nuts, they're so deep that she's going to start wanting to build the pot, and she's not going to think that that uh, it is checkboarding too much anyway. So when she checks behind on the yeah, block, she's got some showdown. She's more or less saying, I, I, I have I have a weak showdown hand, and I'm trying to get the showdown cheaply. Now, as it happens, she's hit a set, but I mean, obviously, um, nine times out of ten, she's not hit, or actually. 19 times out of 20, she's not hitting a set on the turn. So against her whole range, she should bet now and expect to get called by each one pair of hands. Um, and then you can put those hands in the spot in the river where they have to decide to call the second better. Now, bizarrely, Phil does decide to check, I guess, again, uh, a combination of uh, trappy Phil Helmet and also maybe scared Phil Helmet because, you know, again, he mightn't like that board texture. It, it's not as strong as uh, a lot of other boards would have been from. So he does check and he does induce the bet from her this time. Of course, she has made a real hand. So it does it does kind of blindside him a little bit. Uh, I like her sizing there. She goes for 1100 into about 1650, That seems pretty much bang on what you should go for it's going to get called by quite a wide range from phil yeah i agree completely um i think doug actually suggested in the video that he would like a bigger sizing and i was intrigued by that because uh, her sizing seems spot on to me so i did, so i did run into one of the solvers uh Pio, and gave gave it the option of of betting the size that she did and then the bigger sizing that doug advocates and the, the solver actually prefers the smaller sizing that live um Liv chose, and I think there are good reasons for that. When Phil has checked twice, he really does look like he has a sort of the hand that's just trying to get the showdown cheaply. Yeah, with the decision to check twice, he's now kind of started to underrep his hand, and I guess looks like pocket queens or ace jack, maybe hands of that nature, are much more likely. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And, and, and if he has a hand like ace jack or ace ten, we want to encourage him to uh, to call um, because he has. He has very little equity against our hand. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, he does call, obviously. And again, I think it's a combination of trappy Phil and maybe Phil, who's not exactly sure where he is in the hand because he's one of the the, the downsides of taking unconventional lines is and not defining your hand well, is that you now don't understand how to react to the, the questions being posed back at you because you've been sort of dishonest with your behaviour. So in the sort of information exchange, the question answer exchange of poker, uh, bets and calls and bets and raises, he's certainly thrown out some sort of uh, strange uh, questions and now he's not quite sure about the answers he's getting. Yeah, just on that point, uh, just to give Phil some, some 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 credit, I would say that his, his style is super effective playing against weaker recreational players that he plays mostly against when he plays race at events. I think a big part of the reason why he's won more braces than anybody else and probably will also won more braces than anybody else is that the, the kind of lines he takes does exploit weak recreation. A lot of the weak recreation players will just keep betting when he keeps checking. Um, so he, he can play a very bluff-inducing style um, and get away with it. But against better players, um, that's not going to be as effective. Yeah, he's going to be taken to value time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a compelling story for the recreational player to tell somebody that they bluff Phil Helmet. So I guess he he, he knows that. precisely, precisely. Yeah, more people are going to be trying to bluff against him, um, and so that they can tell their all their friends they bluff Phil Helmet. 
and so he has to expect and, and adjust to that. So going to the river, we've got a pot of about 3,800. That sounds about right, 1,100 in again, yeah. So we're we're in that sort of territory and it sort of bricks out as it often will do in that situation. And Phil again checks. Diva, would you take us through the river? Well, yeah, the river has not changed anything. It's like a blank card. Uh, so I guess he has just continued with his story and let live um, block if she is. Uh, and also that for value because also he's not sure if his hand is a winning hand. So I guess, yeah, he just, it would be very strange if he let out uh, and he can only get raised by a better hand. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's fine that he check now. He does go for the check and she obviously comes out with the bet. She goes for quite a small-ish sizing, I think maybe a 60% or something in that range. Maybe it was 2100 into 36, something around that, maybe a little over a half pot. And what this is the point in the hand that really interests me. And I, I know it certainly pricked your, you guys' interest when you first saw this hand, is that this is maybe the area where we diverge away from what, Doug thinks when she goes for that sizing immediately I think to myself okay that's a value sizing that's that's her with maybe a king queen or pocket queens or maybe even ace jack herself if she's brave enough to go for thin value with a hand that low down going for a little bit of you know extra value hoping that she might get a cry call out of his ace 10 or his I guess pocket queens or jack if she has a king so it, it does seem to be in that kind of thinner value range she would go for the big sizing normally with the bigger hands hope to get the, uh, you know paid off in a, in a bigger way and in that situation i think a call by him would make sense but when she goes for this smaller sizing it struck me as thin value and now he's got a really interesting spot because he has a hand that could be good at showdown but he also has maybe one of the nut blocker hands and we talk a lot about blockers dara maybe you could uh, enlighten people to a greater degree than i would be capable yeah as you said it's it's basically when he checks she, he, he's probably hoping she checks behind and then he has the best hand pretty much always. When she bets this sizing, it looks like she's betting She's betting for value. And he's, he's actually only beat, as we said earlier, he's only beating her pin value bets. So he's probably not good. Now, he, does, he, he, he doesn't fold because he doesn't have to be good very often to this sizing. So he probably is good often enough to justify the call. But actually, a better play here is to uh, turn, turn his hand into a bluff, to recognize that his hand isn't, isn't good very often against her betting range on the, on the river. But he has a very good hand to block with because in every spot we always have to have bluffs and check river check rate bluffs are the hardest ones to find bluffs because we need a hand which can win a showdown if it goes check check um, because if it can't win a showdown then we're better if we're going to bluff with the hand leading out but we also need a hand which when the other person bets probably isn't good which is I think definitely true in this case and we also would like a hand which blocks um, some of the very strong hands that they could be betting for value. Um, and I think Aces is more or less the nut blocker hand on this board because the nuts on this board now is Ace-Queen. Um, and we have two of the Aces, so that makes Ace-Queen half as, half as likely as normal when we don't have the Aces. We're also blocking Ace-King, um, which, which is helpful as well. So actually Ace, uh, Aces, is, bizarrely enough, is, a, is probably the best hand to turn into a block here. And when I ran it through the solver, Theo, that's exactly what Theo does with it. It turns into a block, basically just um, check, checks and then raises uh, pretty large when she when she bets. 
trying to get some of her value range forward. Yeah, and in that spot, I don't know, Diva, maybe you can answer this part of it for me. If you're there with maybe bottom Cess or certainly if you're there with like King Queen or King Jack, admittedly hands that might have bet the flop from Liz, Liv's perspective, but then she might have been sort of setting a trap of her own. It fits perfectly into the Phil Helmet image as much as everything else as well, that he would check three times with like a set of kings or ace queen. That's a very Phil Helmet yeah. kind of thing to do. And if she yeah. makes that bet at 2K and faces a race to 7k she, he, you know she's going to be like vomiting basically it's going to be one of those horrible spots yeah super tough spot but then I think it all comes down to yeah of the lifetimes and just like yeah being you know top or bottom of the range and it's quite an interesting spot with blockers coming into, a, into play again you're better you're better having a hand with an ace or a queen yeah like, down. Queen with- yeah like if you for example if you if you have queened yourself that's actually a better call than, uh, than than pocket fives because you're, mm-hmm. you you you're blocking the ace queen. So it's an interesting spot where you know some one pair of hands could actually some one pair and two pair of hands could actually be calls, but the but bottom side is a fold um, because it just doesn't block any of his blocks. I think that's a really fascinating point, and I think for the listeners at home, that's really the crux of this hand is like one recognizing a spot where maybe aces has more blocker value and to turn it into a bluff, but also to recognize the fact that really uh, when faced with a, a check raise, a big check bomb on the river in those spots, your hand is basically a bluff catcher, and then you're looking at the quality of your bluff catcher. And that could often be just a one-pair hand rather than a, a two-pair hand or a set hand in this instance. Dara, Diva, this has been a fascinating hand. Doug did it somewhat justice. I think you guys have finally put it to bed, looked at all the avenues, all the possibilities. Uh, sometimes you've got to turn aces into a bluff. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We're joined now by WSOP bracelet winner, Bellagio Cup winner, Borgata Deepstack champion, LA Classic runner-up, the man who is undoubtedly the king of WPT Fallsview, having captured titles there in 2014, 2016, 2017 and 2018, the latter just coming a few weeks ago in the 5k main event. With almost 7 million in live tournament winnings, he's 8th on Canada's all-time money list. It's got to be Mike Leah. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gaff. Quite a uh, quite a rundown. <laughs> well, Mike, we want to get to your most recent result, but before we do, I know Daryl wants to bring you on a little bit of a trip down memory lane and the summer you first met. I started playing back in 2007, 2008, and 2008 was the first World Series I went to. Um, and I, I was there with my brother. I'd actually learned poker from my brother, and the series didn't go very well. Most days I ended up busting whenever I, I, I whatever bracelet event I was playing and found myself playing uh, I guess they call it the daily deep stack these days but I think it had a different name back then um, and you know basically I'd learned a very tight style of play so I just started to like Add, add a little bit to my stack and then usually bust shortly after the but after the first break that, 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 must, that must that must have been a long time ago it w- <laughs> <laughs> indeed but i remember one night i had an argument with my brother because i said this this is happening to us every night we were both playing this tournament and the same thing is happening every night and there's this guy and he plays a completely different style from us um you'd actually been at my table a few times i had no idea who you are obviously but uh, i said this guy's playing totally different from us uh, and he's there every night with a big stack when we're when we were walking home uh, up the strip to Circus Circus <laughs> so for me it was a real sort of epiphany I kind of realised that like you know type might not be right um, it seemed to me back then that like you had a very loose style but like most players who played loose back then were kind of bad loose whereas you had sort of a very smart loose style how did you evolve that style uh, so quickly? Um, I w- One piece of advice I give to most poker players is you have to play 
sort of within yourself and within your own personality. And I think, um, you know, when, once I kind of got a bit more comfortable with poker and I, that kind of just, uh, I guess just suited the type of style that I enjoyed playing. And if you're enjoying, you know, what you're doing, you're probably, you know, you're going to have more fun and you're probably going to be more successful. So I think it, it just kind of went back to my, my sports background and competitiveness and aggressiveness and just kind of a, a style that I was able to embrace and enjoy. And of course, it's always going to be more fun when you're playing more pots and playing more aggressive than when you're kind of just sitting around and folding. So uh, my whole sort of style of poker is, it, you know, it's not really a, a job for me. It's, it's, you know, it's entertainment and it's a sport and something that I, you know, kind of sort of retired from a career to do. So it sort of all just fits in yeah. um, with that mentality. And it's good to have all, uh, I guess, gears that you can shift in and out of. But definitely, it's always the most fun when you're uh, playing more boss and playing aggressive and, and, uh, and you know, trying to win every hand. Right? Yeah, for sure. And, and and did you sort of like learn that style by trial and error, or uh, had you sort of like because because I mean this is this is the era before training videos. This is the era when most poker books were like not very good. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've I'm still yet to read my first poker book. Um, <laughs> the way the way that I've that I've always learned, whether it was uh, sports or or poker or school, is uh, is trial and error and. Um, learning from my own mistakes and just kind of letting my competitiveness sort of fuel my my learning. Um, I don't like not being good at something, so I you know I I work hard at at, at trying to get better. But it, it's mostly just through uh, you know I'd say the majority from my own mistakes and then also by by being observant and. Um, of course, watching other people's mistakes. Well, Mike, looking at your hand and mob, your first live results date from 2006 in the Bellagio, uh, but you didn't have a six-figure live score until the year after Dara member seeing you in Vegas. You'd already developed as a formidable online player, of course, winning four F-tops, two W-coops, two scoops and a T-coop. Pre-Black Friday, you were ranked in the top 100 in the world on Pocket Fives and were already in demand as an online coach. I remember a video of yours on a training site, I think it was tournament poker edge given how most players who might have sought coaching from you were american how much did black friday affect you and perhaps curtail your coaching ambition uh no um black friday to be completely honest really didn't change change much for me because i've, I've always lived in canada um so i didn't have to you know relocate or or anything like that i worked full-time until September 2008. Oh wow! Um, oh, wow. So I my first, my first, yeah, my first results were, um, you know, while I was kind of juggling a career. Um, I worked for the same company for 16 years, um, so I was a, like a national sales manager back, back in those days. So I had a, you know, a fairly cushy management job. So I was able to sort of uh, balance my uh, my my poker uh, ambitions while I was slacking off at my uh, at my job at the same time. Um, 2007 was probably the most volume I've ever put in online, maybe even like even since I've been playing full-time and not working. Um, I, I grinded pretty hard, probably you know, one or two evenings a week and every weekend pretty much while I was while I was working. And that's kind of where I really... Uh, you know, learn the game, I guess, you know, kind of the foundations and basics and all that sort of stuff. Um, 2006, I had some okay results, but I really didn't know 
much what I was doing. So I kind of um, learned how to play poker while I was giving all that money back that I had won in 2006, <laughs> learning how to play the game. And then uh, when I left my job in uh, September 2008, I wanted to basically travel for a full year. Um, I, like I was basically just giving poker a, a go. I was going to see it, you know, if I enjoyed doing it as, you know, full time and if I could make a, uh, a good enough living off of it. Um, so it was kind of like a, a task year for myself. Um, so I set high goals for 2009. I wanted to try and win um, whatever was card player, player of the year, I think was like maybe or bluff or whatever was the bigger one back then. I kind of set the goal of trying to win that. And I basically traveled just about all year long from the end of 2008 all the way through 2009, just sort of to uh, um, test my poker abilities and how much I liked the game and if it was something I wanted to do, uh, you know, long, long term. But we were talking about Black Friday. Right? That's, that's where you were. Um, yeah, for me, I'm, honestly, I, I would have to really think about what year Black Friday was because <clears throat> it really didn't um, change my routine much at all. And in terms of coaching, uh, coaching's kind of just been a something I enjoy doing, and I think I have a pretty good knack for it. Um, but like right now, I basically turn down ninety nine percent of requests because I've just you know my schedule is pretty busy, and I um, I don't have a need for the for the extra income, and I enjoy my spare time. So it's hard to kind of convince me to to take down the coach and it kind of sort of goes like that I think for a lot of people and you and you mentioned they were basically going full time after 2008 and you certainly had a pretty amazing 2009 uh, that first six figure live result that David mentioned was a second place finish at the 2009 LA Poker Classic um, that's right yeah. and it was a pretty stacked final table that included a lot of names that resonate even today Barry Greenstein Jason Mercer Mike Binger and the man you lost a heads up Hafiz Khan. A month later, you went one better, winning the Borgata deep stack for over 300k. And then a few months later, you won a Venetian deep stack. It must have felt like you'd suddenly kicked into a higher gear um, at the time. How much did you put it down to you being a better player because you'd gone full time? And how much to variance? Um, I think it was a lot of confidence at, at that stage. Um, you know, I had just left my job to kind of test to see if I can do it. And I had, you know, really good success right off the bat, even at the end of 2008. Um, if you look right after I started playing full time, I had like three or four final tables at the U S poker championships back when that was a thing. Um, and then, uh, kind of just continued on through the beginning of 2009. So I, I was, you know, really feeling good about myself and, and my game and having a lot of confidence with, you know, things I was doing were, were working out well. Well, speaking of heaters, you had another mini heater in the fall of 2014 after finishing second to Dan Coleman, himself on the mother of all heaters. Uh, your score there was for a million dollars at the 7-0 Hard Rock main event. And again, uh, you went one better, winning the WSOP APAC 25k high roller for 600k and obviously a bracelet as well. Earlier that year, you'd won a PCA 5k side event, uh, the Falls View Poker Classic and two WSOP circuit rings. Uh, anyone taking a bird's eye view of your live career might be forgiven for thinking you're quite streaky. One success does tend to breed others in quick succession. There are, however, other relatively quiet years like 2011 when you didn't even break six figures total for the entire year. Do you think this was just variance or do you feel your own form dips and rises depending on confidence and how well you're running? I think a combination of everything. Um, I'd have to look a bit closer myself and also, um, you know, just like I've been in and out of 
you know, staking agreements over the years, sometimes being, you know, back, sometimes staking other people. Um, so some results are, you know, might be, you know, have a slight influence on the type of tournaments that I'm playing, um, how many bigger buy-ins, um, how sure. many opportunities I'm having to have, six-figure caches, and then also, you know, volume and um, confidence and success and, and all those things have a have a huge factor. I'm I'm a big, uh, big believer in uh, you know, in uh, in confidence um, being a big factor in, in how someone plays. And you know, when when you're having success, whether it's um, in a specific location like um, uh, Falls View Casino, which I'm sure we'll talk to at some point. <laughs> I'll talk about um, you spoiler know, alert. And you in a venue like that, or annu- like an annual series that I've had just such incredible success that um, the confidence going into every tournament there um, sets me up for uh, for success. Well, now onto the story that had the entire poker world in a tizzy a few weeks ago. Your heads up deal with fellow Canadian Ryan Yu. For anyone out there unfamiliar with the details, Ryan asked for a chip chop heads up. You said you couldn't consider a deal like that unless it declared you the winner. He immediately agreed, possibly to your surprise, preferring to lock up the money rather than play on. The WPT, however, don't stand over these kinds of deals. So on your return from the break, it was pretty obvious that he jumped his chips off to you. Two weeks ago, we had Parker Talbot on the show. We actually mentioned to him that we we're having you on because uh, you messaged Dara while we were in mid-interview with him. Parker immediately jumped to your defence, saying how it's none of other people's business what two guys decide to do with their money. He thought it was ridiculous how you've been treated. Could you give us your perspective on this and have many other professionals jump to your defence? Um, yeah, so I guess basically I'll just go back to, like, to the moment. Um, so obviously it was you know, a tournament at Falls View Casino where I had great success before. And, um, you know, it was, it was a... It was a good battle. There were some really good players on the final table. Um, Ryan was probably the player that I that I knew the best uh, personally. Is you know we're from the same city and we ended up battling quite a bit uh, over the last couple of years. Um, I was one of the bigger stacks the whole way. He was one of the shorter stacks the whole way, and um, he ended up knocking out the, the last couple of people. And we ended up uh, finding ourselves heads up after you know battling for for a few days in that tournament. Um, so in that moment, um, you know, we were both uh, very happy to be there, and uh, there was sure. a bit of a break while they were kind of getting ready for heads-up play. And you know, the discussion of making a deal or looking at numbers had had not come up once. You know, the entire final table, I didn't even hear anyone even even mention it at all. So you know, we were just playing it out and battling. And um, they knew better with you around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, with a uh, quick break in the action. Ryan just said, you know, were you interested in, in looking up the numbers or anything like that? And I said, um, you know, it's, you know, in my mind, like it, it was a pretty flat play, payout. Um, you know, first place was obviously it's, it's a fair amount of money, but in the scope of tournaments, it wasn't, you know, one of the bigger situations or tournaments I, I had been at and I would have been fine just, just playing it out. So in my mind, I, I said, you know, I, I wouldn't be interested in a deal unless, you know, unless I, you know, locked up the win, which, you know, winning another tournament falls you and winning a, a WPT main event were, you know, very, very high on, on my goals and something that I wouldn't have been happy if I didn't accomplish. Um, if I had made a, a chip chop heads up and, um, as a shorter stack, you know, he was, you know, kind of the winner and I was second, I, I wouldn't have been satisfied with that. I would have been much rather, I would have wanted to play it out and take my chances to, to try and win. So, in that moment, I was really like I wasn't thinking at all 
and not that I really should be thinking about anyone else other than myself and, and a little bit of Ryan, you know, as, as a, as a sort of a friendly acquaintance, someone that I respect, you know, I, I also didn't, you know, I wanted to make sure it was something that he was happy with as well, that we could both kind of uh, feel as winners and uh, celebrate and be done. So we were really just only thinking of ourselves. Um, we weren't thinking about uh, the impression that it would leave behind or um, what it would do to the bloggers or to the, you know, WPT or the casino or anything like that. We were, you know, thinking of ourselves, of course, at the time. So, so I have no regrets or nothing to feel sorry about, about that. Um, Won't somebody think of the bloggers? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so, so anyways, um, so we, we make our deal. We go over the numbers. We, we um, talk about the tournament of champions to make sure that's included in the, uh, into the ICM breakdown and everything. So, you know, we, you know, triple check to make sure we're both completely happy with, with everything that has to go on. And uh, then we talk to the, to the tournament director and he says that we have to just continue to play it out, even though we made a deal. Um, so we hadn't really thought about that, but it obviously it made sense. And we kind of, you know, knew that that makes sense that we'd have to do that. As most, a lot of tournaments, you have to kind of just continue to, to play to winner, even if, you already make a deal. Um, so we just said, okay, well, how are we going to do this? And we said, well, you know, whatever, you can just raise a big portion of your stack and, and then I'll go all in and you fold and we'll just get it over with quick so we can celebrate and, and move on. Um, so if like, if I had thought about it more, you know, how it's like knowing that they were actually going to report the hands that were going on and how silly would look and um, maybe bad for them and, and everything else. Um, I, like, obviously if I'm in that spot again, I will uh, uh, reconsider and, and probably do things a different way. Um, I still wouldn't want to be sneaky about it and to make a deal and, and have him, you know, instead of over four hands over 12 hands, you know, kind of dump off his chick chips by, by raising and folding or for betting and folding or, or doing things like that. I, I like, even though a lot of you're asking about other players, you know, and I've had some players say, well, you know, you should have just kind of done it, you know, quieter. And I'm like, I, I don't understand. Like, I still don't agree or understand how that could possibly be seen as better um, to make a deal. I totally and, agree yeah, I completely agree. And have, and have him like, just like lose to me. Um, so like I, like there's obviously a, de- a better way to do it, and the one thing that will definitely come out of what happened here is there's been so much discussion, and and I'm sure um, tours and organizers and players and everyone else will find a better way to do things because you know I obviously don't want to embarrass myself or or tarnish my own reputation or other players, and I don't want to make you know you know WPT or WSOP or Falls you Casino or any of those places look bad or or not feel happy about, you know, the way that something goes down. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think I would ever go back in time and, and do it in a way that we, you know, um, secretly, you know, dump chips to, to one another. Cause I really think that's, that's much worse. Um, but, um, yeah, the essence of what you did was that you did nothing wrong. So you did it out in the open in a very obvious way that sort of shows that you weren't trying to hide anything. Yeah, that, that was our thinking. We'll, we'll just make it obvious that, you know, we made a deal. We we're both happy with it and we'll just get it over with and, and move on. It was kind of what we were trying to accomplish. So we, 
we able we were able to have a lot of fun while we were doing it. And we were making jokes and kind of just you know enjoying ourselves. We were, I saw we were someone your beach your beach. They were very funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we we were just having a good time and uh, we were already enjoying our wins and just kind of going through the process of getting the chips the chips done so that we could end it. Um, and it was funny when we finally got short enough to where we could just have some all ins and let some cards run. He ended up winning like three or four all ins in a row. So we had to keep <laughs> doing it again. But um, so it, it was a lot of fun in the moment. And over obviously over the next couple of days, it was uh, it was not so much fun dealing with uh, with everything. Um, in terms of uh, how players have responded to me, um, pretty much everybody in in person has been very supportive. I went out to LAPC and I played a, a few live tournaments since then and obviously like friends of mine and colleagues and everyone a lot of the like, direct messages and um in person has been very supportive on forums and posts um there's definitely been a lot of people uh you know jumping to my defense and and defending me against people that were kind of attacking and, and things like that but um obviously if someone has something not nice to say, they're probably going to do it online and not in person. So um, I haven't really had any uh, much negative uh, in-person things other than just, you know, people I'm friendly with kind of just trolling me and, and, uh, and uh, things like that. Um, it was funny. I saw Ryan in Vegas. Uh, he ended up going deep in the uh, WSOP circuit main event at the Rio. Um, so I, I was, kind of walking by there like two tables left and he was getting pretty deep and he uh made the joke well hopefully i have a a, a ring to sell and uh tomorrow we interviewed will kasuf last year after his Prague high roller win after he actually surrendered about 15k in equity from a position of short stack to be granted a title and trophy in your facebook message you made a distinction a very important one about what you and ryan uh, did and the type of thing william did what would you say to people who tar you with the same brush um, well, that was like the, the, the main thing that really upset me, um, was when people just used the phrase, um, you know, bought, bought the trophy or bought the title or, or something to that. For some reason, that just kind of really, uh, um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't like the, the feel or the, or the sound of that or being accused of, of that. Um, because I would never, I would never actually do that. I would never give someone money or give up equity or anything like that for, for a title. It was just a, you know, um, if, uh, if they want to do an even, even ICM deal, that's fair for everyone. And they're, and they're giving me the win. Well, you know, that that's probably going to be enough for me to make the deal because, you know, winning a tournament is what I go into every tournament trying to do. Um, in a lot of heads up deals, you know, one person's trying to get more than ICM or a bit better of a deal for themselves. And that kind of negotiating goes on. Um, so there, there could be that, but I would never, um, I would never take less than ICM in a deal. Um, even when I was heads up with Dan Coleman and we had a very brief discussion discussion about maybe looking at the numbers and he gave me the quick um, impression that, that he would want more than an ICM. And I quickly said, no, I, I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. So we just played heads up for whatever, four or $500,000. And he, and he beat me and, <laughs> and that was that. And for the most part, most tournaments, um, um, it's not as much about the money for me as it is about, uh, you know, competing and, and trying to win and, and not having any regrets afterwards about, uh, you know, anything that I've done. 
Well, in the aftermath of your deal, Grant Hinkle said, uh, Mike Leah has cast a giant sceptical shadow over all of his titles now. And at the same time, he cheapened the value of a WPT championship he coveted so much. I gotta say, Mike, when I heard this statement, I thought that was total nonsense. I, I think the phrase sceptical shadow really crosses a line. Have you had an opportunity to speak properly with people like Grant or his brother Blair, Matt Salzberg, Dan O'Brien, others who've come out against you uh, and what you did beyond? And I feel I have to give this lovely little detail because I did a spit take laughing uh, with your parting shot to Grant. You said, you're free to your opinion. You have to get there before you can even consider making a deal. And I get there more than you <laughs> I really did love that particular burn <laughs> yeah that was uh, I was at an interesting place in my uh, mental state at that moment um, I was I was on a uh, cross Atlantic flight going to uh, Rosvedoff Czech Republic oh, um, yeah. so we unfortunately there. I was unfortunately I was able to find Wi-Fi on the flight um, and so instead <laughs> of sleeping um, I uh was reading Twitter notifications and writing that on the flight. Um, so I was, I think, on two or three. I think that was would have been my second overnight without, like, with less than one hour sleep. So I was working on very little sleep and dealing with this whole uh, aftermath of uh, thousands of uh, Twitter messages and and stuff like that. There weren't really any personal attacks from from people I know. Many um, of the like really kind of nasty personal attacks were just from random uh, trolls on Facebook or Twitter that I'd never met before. Um, so like most of the, the key guys that you mentioned, um, you know, kind of made a point of saying that it wasn't uh, really a personal thing. They just weren't happy with, uh, you know, the deal or how it uh, kind of looked. Like I, I wish, like honestly, I wish there were no deals in, in any poker tournament. Um, like I love the competition and the sport of it. And, you know, playing heads up for a title or a trophy is, is, you know, the most exciting thing in poker. And that's what we try to get to every time that we play. You know, just situations, you know, come about where deals are talked about and they're in players' best interest. And it's kind of hard to, you know, not many players are going to say, no, I don't want to lock up, uh, you know, $200,000. I want to just gamble it and, and, and go for the win. Um, not many people are going to uh, think that way. Most people, when they get to that point, are, are happy to lock it up. Um, I try not to make deals, and I purposely have not made deals in a lot of tournaments um, you know, where you know the money isn't meaningful to me at all, like in those circuit events or in like online tournaments like those F-tops and, and things like that. Um, I've always just played those out because I, you know, I just like the fun of playing them out and the money really doesn't mean much but um in those occurrences if someone had said to me you know at that time you know well we can do icm and i'll give you the win um when i was chasing f-top titles and things like that if that was possible you know i i can't imagine i would have said no to that type of thing but you know it obviously never never came up um in any of those and uh so we just you know kind of always just played them out but um in the future, <laughs> things uh, things may be done a little bit differently. Sure. 
I think I think the bottom line for me, Michael, these ones is that, and you made the distinction about sporting events um, and how you feel like poker is like the end of a sporting event there when you get heads up. But in in the end of the day, the players are putting up the money, and for me, that's the big distinction here. You know, who are the WPT or anyone for that matter to tell you and another player what to do with their money? You guys put the money in the prize pool. They didn't put anything extra in the prize pool. Okay, yes, they've hosted the tournament and that's fine, but that for me is is where it separates from sport or where. It, it sort of should just come down to a, a sort of a, a handshake between two gentlemen. Right. And yeah, and, and obviously that's been a very popular opinion. And, that, and I, I obviously agree to that to some level because obviously, you know, that's the deal that we made and um, we weren't thinking about anybody but ourselves. But, you know, like I, I personally, like I do care a lot about the, the history of poker and, you know, um, you know, titles and, and chasing, you know, WSOP caches and bracelets and tournament titles. Like all that stuff does mean a lot to me. Like that's where I get a lot of my motivation from. Um, so I, like, I do care about things being meaning, meaningful and, um, and tallies and things like that. So I, like, I do understand where a lot of people are, are coming from. Well, to end on a less controversial note, you've had a remarkable career over the last decade. And anytime I see you at the tables, you seem as intensely focused as ever. What are your remaining ambitions in poker? And how long do you see yourself maintaining this level of intensity and success? Um, definitely as long as I can. Um, poker is always going to be a part of my life, like for as long as I live, no question. Um, but I'm sure there'll come a time where I won't play as much or I'll maybe take some breaks here and there. Um, but, um, you know, I, like I love the game. I love to compete and I have, um, you know, still huge goals and ambitions, um, for myself. I'm still stuck on one WSOP bracelet, which is, um, very, very annoying and frustrating to me. Um, so, you know, I, like I have, I have visions of myself, you know, like you know, chasing Phil Hellmuth for all time bracelets, but, um, I'm so very far behind. Now I want to win a, you know, a, a second WPT title, and can't wait till it follows you next year. And well, Mike Lee, it remains for me to say. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really wanted to give you a platform today to respond to all the vitriol coming your way. And I'm really grateful uh, you chose to stop by this show. Uh, it's really clear for me, contrary to what some people might think, that you're a passionate caretaker of the game. Mike Lee, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for uh, having me on, guys. And uh, yeah, it's been a uh, quiet little stretch after dealing with all that. So I was able to reflect a little bit and um, I enjoyed it as well. So uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Mike. Well, with the week that's in it, I couldn't resist the temptation to play us out with a Norwegian band. This is Aha and Take On Me.
Thanks again to Barry, Freddie, Diva and Mike. We normally take a hiatus at this stage of the season, but there's so much great poker to cover at the moment, we've decided we're only going to take a single week off. In a fortnight's time, it's the turn of Unibet DSO, as Alex Henry takes us towards the beautiful city of Lyon. We'll also be talking to Aussie Millions winner Bo Dog Ari. Until then, from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck. (laughs) 